This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's definitely rough when it comes to General Electric. Stock is down more than 10%, pretty much hovering near its lows of the session. Uh, as I said earlier, it's kind of a wait-what moment because uh, the stock tumbling, the company coming out with its uh, first earnings under its uh, newest CEO. Let's get into this with Jim Corridor, equity analyst over at CFRA Research, on the phone in New York City. He cut his 12-month price target in 2018 EPS estimates on GE. Uh, also, Karen Ubelhart is our senior industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Karen, I want to start with you. Uh, We mentioned this stock uh, tumbling to a 2009 low below $10, and that's where it sits right now at $9.96. We expected there to be a lot in this quarter, a lot of bad junk, (laughs) if you will. Is it worse than we expected? Walk, Walk us through it. I, I think uh, people wanted um, more. Uh, you know, there's a first of all the investigation. Now people are like, how big is that black hole? The additional DOG investigation, adding the goodwill charge, that black hole is what scared people for a while, and now it just got bigger. And they also said that they have to help fund, uh, put more money into GE Capital. More and, than they and, the, and the and the DOJ has been looking into that twenty-two billion dollar charge that GE took in connection with its power unit, yes, right? Yes. Okay. And so, sorry. And so, Jim, as you take a look at this, worse than you expected. I mean, what what was the big surprise here? Because we knew that there were some things that obviously got Larry Culp's predecessor fired. So, what really caught people off guard? I think it's a combination of the announcement of the DOJ investigation, coupled with the cutting of the dividend by almost 95 percent, basically wiping out the dividend. Mm -hmm. So investors that were in the stock for the dividend, even though it was reduced from earlier this year already, were exiting at at one cent per share. At the same time, that investors that were holding on with hopes of restructuring are disheartened by the DOJ and SEC investigations. So are we missing something? It's an $86 billion market cap company that's expected to have $120 billion in revenues. I mean, Karen, it's not like there isn't value in General Electric. Uh, you know, I think it's it's the unknowns that are scaring people. If I look at the aerospace business, is an unbelievable business, and it blew th- this, things away um, in this quarter. Healthcare is good. I mean, standalone, the company certainly um, got a lot of value in it. But it's just how big are the charges? How much will they pay? I have a thought on the goodwill write-off. Um, there is a lot of flexibility on um, when you ca- have to recognize a goodwill charge. Right. Caterpillar went four years years losing 75% of their revenues in their mining business. And we kept saying, when are you going to write it down? When are you going to write it down? There was a clause in their 10K that says, basically, as long as you think there is value there over the long term, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to write it down. I don't know what GE will decide, but we were badgering them to do it. And guess what? They were right. The business is rebounding. It's up 25% from the bottom, and it's not back where it was. Right. But, so there's that's when I learned, oh, there's a lot more flexibility in this. So you know, I wouldn't think they're going to necessarily... Um, have to, you know, take an, uh, a bigger hit. So, Jim, wh- what do they need to do now? What do you need to hear from Culp to give you confidence that he's got this ship closer to, to right than before? Yeah, so a few things. Number one, we need to have 
these restructurings and these write downs stop. We can't have a $22 billion charge here, a $15 billion charge in January, and have it keep going on and on. We need to have you know, stability so that we can have some faith for the future. Number two, Mr. Culp has to set some financial targets, which they are setting, and they need to hit them and execute on these targets. So you can't really even figure out how to value a stock like GE until you have some kind of firm financial foundation that you can trust that when they tell you uh, uh, some kind of revenue or earnings guidance that there's a good chance they might hit it. And they've missed target after target after target and had endless restructuring. So they need to put a stop to that and start hitting and executing again. Well, okay, but do you expect that, um, Jim, to start next quarter? I mean, I mean, I'm just curious if they haven't given the new guy kind of time to get settled in his seat and really figure out where all the problems are buried uh, so that he can come out and say, hey, folks, here's, here, here, here it all is. Uh, or, or do we need to be patient? And could we expect maybe another couple of quarters where things are going to be, you know, we're going to have some surprises coming out? So, yeah, I would argue for patience, but if you look at GE investors, they're angry. They didn't give John Flannery uh, six months to, to, to enact his restructuring program before they showed him the door. So, uh, you know, it's going to take a while. It's going to take six months to a year before you can get a ship the size of GE to turn around. But investors are angry and impatient, and they're unlikely to give the company much time. So and they're Karen, worried about the financial side, yeah. and, and they didn't yeah. tell us a way they're going to generate real cash. You know, they said we're, we're not doing Baker Hughes, the sale of Baker Hughes uh, shares earlier. We're, you know, we're not selling GCAS. We're not, you know, they haven't given us a way. We're not doing an equity offering. Then how are you going to get out of this cash mire? So do you, you know? think ultimately yeah. they changed their mind on that? And what's the most likely scenario to raise that money? I think they do change their mind on, on some of this. Um, you know, first of all, Baker Hughes announced today that they're halting their stock repurchase, waiting to see what GE is going to do. <laughs> GE said they're not changing the time frame. So there is some kind of conflict there. GE, uh, Baker Hughes is basically saying, we'll take it, we'll take it, and, you know, we'll take it off the market um, in advance of the Ju- July 2019 lockup period. Um, also, GCAS, they love that business. I'm not so sure they're ready to do something with that. But they're getting knocked on the door. You know, the doors are getting knocked down on that on um, air, air aviation finance business. Right. I don't think they're ready for that yet. But but you know, hey Jim, just quickly, got about thirty seconds. You kept your hold rating despite cutting the price target and the full year EPS estimate. Why? Just quickly. Well. Yeah, there's a lot of value at the company. Like Karen said, they have great assets. They are a leader in aviation. Transportation's doing great, even though they're spinning it off. Healthcare is a leader. And oil and gas showed stability this quarter. So there are some great assets at GE. And if they could just get their restructuring halted, get the company back on firm footing, there's going to be value there. But it's just a matter of, of, of when. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's tough to put a sell on a stock that is down you know, 36, 37 percent the way GE is. Um, investors do want to rotate into the stock. You've seen several right. pops of the stock uh, out over time. And if they could just get some good news going, Got I think it. investors will rotate back into the shares. Yeah, down uh, about 10 percent today, down 43 percent so far in 2018. Jim Cordor, equity analyst over at CFRA Research, on the phone in New York. Karen Eubelhart, thank you, senior industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Masser and Jason Kelly.
Yeah, a lot of things coming out uh, from Apple. They've got a big event underway in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, they're revamping their MacBook Air laptop for the first time in eight years. They're also revamping their iPad with some uh, iPhone features. Let's get into this with Mark Gurman, our technology reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from our bureau in Los Angeles. Uh, hey, Mark, uh, Apple shares little changed. Uh, you know this company really well and its product line. Uh, is it significant product announcements or how do you assess it? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on who you're asking. I mean, to investors, is it significant? No. Combined, these products will represent fewer than 10% of Apple's sales, uh, which is not much when you look at how much services and the iPhone and some of the other products uh, generate for Apple overall. So from an investor perspective, not a lot. From a perspective of keeping the ecosystem sticky and making consumers happy, this is huge news today. What you saw are two of the most popular Macs get updated, one for the first time in four years, and the other revamp for the first time in eight years. And so what are people, what features are people most excited about, Mark, when they look at the sort of rundown here? So the MacBook Air, ever since it was announced by Steve Jobs, believe it or not, all the way back in October of 2010, people have been asking for a retina display. And they almost did this back in 2012. They almost came out with it. They canceled that at the last minute. They've been working on prototypes of this type of computer for uh, as long as I could remember. Now, after years of complaints, people asking, where is this thing? Uh, They finally, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, decided they're finally going to do it. And here they are today with that. Hey, and what about the iPad? The iPad, this is the biggest update to the iPad Pro since it was announced in 2015. And I'm not just saying that every time Apple comes out with a new product, they say, hey, this is the biggest update ever. But objectively, this is the most significant update (laughs) to the iPad Pro itself. Uh, New design, edge-to-edge screen. Game changer? Not really. It's about $150 more expensive, and these things now go all the way up to $1,900, which makes them more expensive than most PCs you can get on the market today that are fully functional, and that's excluding the cost of the keyboard and the pen and all that. And, you know, combine everything together, you're looking at over $2,000 for this thing, for something that, you know, a lot of people mostly just use to watch Netflix or browse Facebook. <laughs> right. So not a huge game changer. And the Mac Mini, that's more familiar to probably professional users than anything. It's not something that we uh, hear a lot about, but also used in home media setups, right? That's exactly right. Uh, A lot of people buy these things for home media setups instead of an Apple TV if you want to turn your living room into uh, a computer. I know a lot of bands and musicians use these things as well, server environments. Big news there, faster processors. But again, big price hike. That's the theme of today. We're going from $500 to $800 for these new Mac minis. Well, and that sort of follows on what they've been doing with the phones, too. I mean, that was the I think there was a lot of sticker shock Mm -hmm. um, when the latest uh, raft of iPhones came out, too. These high prices that they're that they feel like they can definitely command, right? It's extraordinarily interesting because what you're seeing is either a slowdown or a stagnation in terms of unit sales, right? They know that their unit sales are not going to grow. They're not going to sell bigger amounts of the actual phones, but they know they're not going to sell fewer amounts either. So they figure, hey, we can keep selling the same amount for an infinite amount of time, but keep raising the prices slowly year after year and continue to grow our revenues. And so that's what we're seeing. Because as you say, I mean, the infrastructure is sticky. I mean, I look at my household and we're just kind of all in on Apple and it's going to take a lot for us to to undo that if we wanted to make a change. Right. Yeah, I don't see unit sales dropping anytime soon, um, but I see people upgrading less. I don't see the ecosystem expanding. Yeah. And the way to combat that is pricing. And so looking ahead to earnings, what uh, what are we looking for here? 
What we're looking for is about 18 to 20 percent year-over-year revenue growth, but unit sales growth, again, is not going to be much stronger. What's really interesting are some of the estimates are indicating that iPhone unit sales are going to be either flat or fewer than 1 to 2 percent growth. Now, why that's super interesting to me is last year, the new iPhone, the iPhone 10, didn't come out until the holiday quarter. So these new iPhones, the 10s and 10s Max, have about a week and a half of runway time in this quarter that they're going to be announcing on Thursday. So right. even with the new iPhones around this time, you're not going to see big unit growth. Hey, Mark, just quickly, 20 seconds here. Is there anything that they was kind of missing from this product announcement that you were like, hey, I thought we were going to hear about this? Nothing that I didn't think we were going to hear about, but, you know, already looking into what's going to be happening in 2019, 2019, AirPods, the AirPower charger, and lots of new software. So we'll be looking out for that. Great stuff. As always, Mark Gurman, our tech reporter, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, thanks for the update on Apple's update. And we're obviously looking ahead to their earnings. A lot of attention focus, not just for Apple, but for the broader uh, tech yeah. market, Carol. Talks to you about the tech community. Talks to you about the, what consumers are up to. Well, IBM hoping that there's black and red hat, that's for sure. Uh, Garrett DeVink is tech reporter for Bloomberg here on the East Coast, uh, recently relocated uh, from our Toronto bureau, uh, I believe, and he's got a heck of a a beat and a big story uh, on his beat. IBM, obviously, with that big deal announced yesterday, actually announced Sunday, I guess, technically, uh, to buy Red Hat, $33 billion. Great story out today, Garrett has, about Really, the CEO of IBM, Jenny Rometty, this is going to be arguably what she might be remembered most for, for for better or worse. Right, Garrett? So what do you make of it? I mean, absolutely. And and up to this point, I mean, Jenny has been CEO for a while now, since 2012, I believe. And IBM has been known as sort of, you know, declining revenues, five years straight declining revenues quarter after quarter. That kind of changed this year and then it kind of went back. And it's just been this company that people don't think too much about anymore. They don't talk too much about anymore. The narrative is very stuck that it's a declining company, that it's on its way out, that it's not interesting anymore. And suddenly they go and do what I think is the third biggest tech deal in history for Red Hat, a company that a lot of people don't know much about necessarily, but is you know a key player in the enterprise software space. And this is now, for better or for worse, what um, the CEO will be known for. Yeah, no doubt about it. So let's bring in Lisa Ellis, partner and senior equity analyst over at Moffat Nathanson. She covers IBM. Um, our Garrett DeVink, uh, tech reporter here at Bloomberg News. Lisa, just kind of running down that deal and how this is going to be really key to, to how Ginny Rometty is kind of perceived in the future. You agree that this is it? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, her legacy at this point. Um, uh, d- definitely. I mean, when she you know, jo- uh, became the CEO of IBM, uh, you know, now six years ago, she really inherited this challenge for IBM um, and a lot of the market trends, the shifts toward the cloud that have driven the challenges for the company were already well underway. And she has spent most of the last six years, right, trying to architect some 
level of turnaround uh, for this company, and this is really the crown jewel of that. I mean, this is her transformational deal. At, at the, um, at the same we'll time, they announced a buyback today, right, of $4 billion shares, um, which is kind of, you know, Garrett, going back to this has been kind of how they've been operating for some time, right? Buybacks. Yeah, I mean, with a focus on the share price, with a focus on, on, on perception from investors, um, and the $4 billion might sound a little incongruous with obviously the, the massive acquisition that they announced on Sunday, but it was very routine. And they did say in their, their announcement that they will not halt the buybacks until 2020. But it does show that this company is still very much focused on you know, revenue growth on EPS. The deal will be accretive to margin, will be accretive to revenue growth very soon. Um, IBM has quite strict controls on the kind of acquisitions that they can do. They don't just go buy things that don't necessarily make profit and can't contribute to the bottom line. So at the end of the day, this is still a company that is focused on its perception from investors. So Lisa, what's the biggest risk here? Is it execution risk? Is that is it that they didn't do it soon enough, that they're behind? What What could derail this effectively? Uh, the biggest risk here is the fact that um, Red Hat is known for being an agnostic player. A lot of the uh, a lot of the success of Red Hat has come from the fact that they are Switzerland, as we keep hearing. Right? Mm-hmm. They have major partnerships with all of the major cloud players: AWS, Google, Microsoft. Now, IBM has been very clear that they're going to keep Red Hat separate and that Red Hat is going to maintain those relationships. But the challenge is this is a revenue synergy-driven deal where a lot of the revenue synergies are supposed to come from the cross-sell with all of the IBM product and through the IBM distribution engine. Um, and so navigating that somewhat of, um, you, know, a, a, you know, what sounds a little bit incongruous, right, those that seem a bit of conflicting goals right. um, is going to be the challenging part. Garrett, what's interesting, and I love this in your story, like we learned something here, right? You, it's not about necessarily IBM along with its Red Hat acquisition going after Amazon and Google, but you talk about a shot at the next wave, you write, the hybrid cloud. And that's kind of what yeah, I and I mean this hybrid cloud is a is a piece of jargon that I've tried to avoid using <laughs> for a while now. It. But there it is. you know we're at the point now where it, it seems to be a mainstream enough um, you know word that it, it is something that we should be talking about. And so essentially that that just admits that many many companies obviously are not ready to move everything into Amazon Web Services into Amazon's cloud today. I would say you know the majority of companies, big and small, are not ready to do that. And so what IBM talks about when they mean when they say hybrid cloud is building you know software and doing different things to sort of be in between a company's own servers that they might still have at their company on their own uh, premises and linking that to Amazon Web Services or to Microsoft Azure or to Google's cloud. And so IBM, in terms of that risk of sort of favoring their own public cloud, which has not been very successful compared to those big three competitors, they are essentially waving the white flag and saying, we're not going to win that fight with Amazon on the big public cloud side. So let's do more and double down on what Red Hat is known for, which is being this in-between layer and helping people manage their IT in a way that, you know, IBM has always sold lots of different kinds of services. The question is still, will they push their own public cloud product at the, you know, 
when right. employers don't want it. I, I tell you one fact that I'm also interested in here, and Garrett, I, I wonder if, if you can speak to it, and Lisa as well, is Jim Whitehurst, the CEO uh, of Red Hat. You know, this is a guy who did not really come out of technology world. He was, I believe, at BCG. Then he was the COO at Delta Airlines before he came over to Red Hat. Does he stick around? Does he become part of this team? What, what are you it, hearing? It's a really, really interesting question because, you know, there's always been this question about Jenny Rometty's leadership on, on her own, especially after these years of revenue decline. There's no sense that she's going anywhere, especially now that she's done this major deal. She has this project now to work on and to prove herself with. The last time they made a major acquisition with another cloud company called Softlayer, this, they said they're going to stick around, that they will be allowed to operate independently. It didn't quite work out that way, and that CEO did end up leaving. So it will be interesting to see if yeah. IBM follows this promise of letting Jim run Red Hat in the way that it has been, in the way that it's its customers want it to be run. Right. Lisa, does IBM kind of need to let Red Hat and Jim Whitehurst run the company as it is in order for this to be a success? Uh, they probably do. I mean, they 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 need to adopt a lot of the um, the you know the philosophy and the model and the culture that Red Hat has. So yeah. it's one of these where, to the extent they can incubate and cultivate that culture and push it back into the IBM cloud organization, the better. But that will be a major execution challenge uh, for IBM. Really good stuff. Lisa Ellis, partner and senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson, on the phone with us from New York, and Garrett DeVink, our own uh, technology reporter here at Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So this story may be pretty much about the most ambitious attempted market grab the world has ever seen. I love this story. I'm just putting this out out there, Jason. I think this is my favorite story already on Business Week. Uh, it's coming wow. up in the magazine. This, Bold uh, call early in the week. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's coming out. It'll hit newsstands later in the week. Uh, Tom Orlick is chief economist at Bloomberg Economics. The story is featured in the upcoming New Economy Forum issue of uh, the magazine. He wrote the story. He joins us on the phone from our Washington, D.C. bureau. Because I think, Tom, we so have to watch. We get caught up in so much day-to-day stuff, but we really need to watch at the long-term planning that's going on in China, especially with these trade wars. Yeah, I think that's completely right, Carol. Um, and indeed, uh, the two are closely related, right? Um, here in Washington, D.C., the um, the immediate concern is that trade deficit, which the U.S. has with China. Um, but underlying that concern is China's industrial policy ambitions uh, and the concern that Beijing has this really uh, concerted plan in place to take over key parts of the global manufacturing sector from robots to airplanes to new energy vehicles. Right. And and so let's go down a, a level, Tom, because that's what I love about your story is that you really map this out in a way that candidly, I've never really understood this trade war and the sort of nuances and the, the contours of it until I read your story. It, it really is. Carol's right. It, it's a must read. So what are the areas that, especially if you're a business person in the U.S., you want to be you, you are most concerned about here? Well, I think what's of concern to the U.S. government uh, and certainly of concern to U.S. business is that the China 2025 plan, uh, that's the plan which China published back in 2015, um, really represents a concerted attempt to take over 
all of the key sectors which will define the economy uh, in the 21st century. Um, so if you're in Taiwan, you're concerned about semiconductors. If you're in the US, you're concerned about airplanes. If you're in Korea, you're concerned about shipping. If you're in Japan, you're concerned about home electronics. Uh, across this whole sort of wave of the economy, the sectors of the future, China has this plan um, to lift its, its own companies up in terms of their capacity. Um, and of course, that's going to come at the price of reduced market share for global competitors. Hey, Tom, we've seen other countries, I would, I would uh, reckon, you know, who have set out to say, hey, we're going to own this market or, you know, we're going for a market share grab, if you will, in some particular industry. What's different, though, about what China is doing specifically? And I know you get into things like the government support, among other things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a key question, key point, Carol. Um, there's, and there's a number of axes on which China is different from, say, a Japan or a Korea or a Taiwan. Um, I mean, the first one, as you flag, is the scale of government support. Uh, we're talking about tens of billions of yuan, if not hundreds of billions of yuan, which the government is pouring into this very ambitious industrial development strategy. Um, there's also a fear that China's government is, if not exactly breaking by breaking the rules, at least not abiding by the spirit of the rules. Things like forcing technology transfer from U.S. companies to Chinese companies is something which really concerns the government here in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, and behind it all um, is China's enormous size and their status as a geopolitical rival uh, to the U.S. Um, a Japan, a Korea, a Taiwan, yes, they could move up the technology ladder, they could catch up with the U.S. in terms of productivity, but they were never going to challenge the preeminence of the U.S. as the world's biggest economy. With China, that could be very different. And so, Tom, part of what we all see in this story writ large is the rhetoric, uh, the rhetoric from President Trump and even some of the rhetoric from President Xi. These two leaders are meant to meet uh, later in November. You know, you have a really nice uh, turn of phrase in your piece about their relationship and you go back, uh, you know, to this April 2017 summit. They ate some chocolate cake. They promised this 100-day plan. And you say the bonhomie lasted longer than the dessert, but not much. I mean, this is a troubled relationship, or at least a complicated one, uh, to say the least. So as we look ahead to this meeting in November, what, what should we be looking for? Well, I mean, Jason, thanks very much for highlighting that piece, uh, that that line. Um, unfortunately, that is the best line in the entire piece. So now readers don't have to <laughs> don't have to tie through it. You've just shared it with them. Um, uh, but uh, no, coming back to the November summit. And Tom, Jason of, likes you already. You don't need to say that. I'm okay. just saying. Um, so, um, so yes. Yeah, so Trump and she scheduled to have a meeting on the sidelines of the G20 summit. Um, and for a site for a meeting on the sidelines, there's just a huge amount hanging on it. Yeah. Um, we had a, a great story out of Bloomberg News yesterday um, with uh, sources from the U.S. administration saying, you know what, if this meeting doesn't go well, we're going to go all the way on tariffs. We already have tariffs on $250 billion in Chinese goods. That's a lot. We'll go to $505 billion in Chinese goods. Yeah. So tariffs on everything which China exports to the U.S. 
if that happens, we'd expect to see a really sizable chunk coming right. out of China's growth next year. All right. Great story. A must read this week. I told you it is hands down my favorite story in the magazine this week already. Tom Orlick is chief economist at Bloomberg Economics. It's featured in the upcoming New Economy Forum issue of Bloomberg Business Week, hitting newsstands on this Friday. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, it is time for the drive to the close on the second trading day of the week. And Jason Kelly, we've got a little bit of a rally. In fact, we've picked uh, picked up some momentum as we head here to the close. We have about a one and a half percent gain on the S and P five hundred, up one point seven percent on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and uh, also one and a half percent gain on the Nasdaq. That average is up about one hundred and six points. Don't forget, we're going to get Facebook earnings. And let me just put it out there: all of the major industry gr- industry groups in the S and P five hundred are higher today. The number Top three performers, communication services, energy names, and materials. Yeah, it is an interesting move that we've seen really accelerate. Even while we've been on air um, for the Mm -hmm. past couple hours, we've really seen uh, a pickup. So let's get someone to help us make some sense of this. Sounds like a plan. Luckily, we have Janelle Woodward. She's president of Fixed Income and Senior Portfolio Manager at BMO Global Asset Management. Joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. She's down there for the Schwab Impact Conference. Janelle, great to be with you. Thanks for joining Carol and myself. So what's driving this market uh, so far into the green right now? You know, it was interesting. I had a conversation with one of my analysts earlier today, and I said, if you closed your eyes and didn't look at the market reaction and looked at what we were hearing from earnings, would you expect to see the market performing as it is? And, you know, the answer was a resounding no. And so I think when we look at really what we're seeing in the earnings and how far we've come in the correction, we think that uh, it's probably a little bit overdone, and I think we're a little bit more constructive in the market. Well, I'm always curious when we go to these investment conferences like you've been at. You've been at the Schwab Investment Conference uh, in Washington. What's the conversation? What are people talking about? Is it the midterms? Is it earnings? Is it trade policy between the United States and China? It's still all of those. I think the conversation we still continue to have as it relates to fixed income is really where we are in this rate cycle and what it means for fixed income, not just treasuries, but really what it means for all assets and asset classes with longer duration profiles. And certainly we've seen some digestion in that market uh, earlier this year in February. I think as far as fixed income markets, this is really what what investors continue to wrestle with. And has the recent volatility introduced any sort of cautious uh, sentiment into the conversations that you're having on, on your desk, Janelle? Uh, it definitely has. I mean, I think it's something that we have to think about and also think about how that gets priced uh, into the markets. But it's interesting. If you look at the volatility measures, the market looks a lot like February. And in fact, uh, volatility measures have not quite reached those levels. Um, so it was an expectation that we had earlier in the year. One of the things we stepped back and said is we expect higher levels of volatility. And now that we're seeing it, um, tying it back to fixed income, I think with all the focus on rising rates and what it means to the price of of 
bonds. I think uh, really looking at month-to-date performance, it does remind us about the risk-free element of fixed uh, fixed income and really the defensive nature uh, that it still has in, in the construct of an overall asset allocation plan. What do you make, you know, I bring this up because I'm curious as a fixed income investor and strategist, you know, what you watch in terms of what it means for where we are kind of in the economic cycle, which will also indicate, you know, where we're going to see uh, treasuries trade in many ways in the fixed income market. Do you look at things like the yield curve? Uh, Guggenheim partners were out and saying, you know, you can't ignore the yield curve. They're not going to be lying about the next recession. And they're looking for uh, the next U.S. recession to begin in early 2020. Yeah, it's something that we're definitely watching, and this was topical this summer when we saw um, a significant flattening of the two tens curve. We think this is. We don't think the markets themselves change the Fed's approach, especially in light of the strength of the economic data. But certainly, if we get to a point where yield, the yield curve continues to flatten and potentially comes inverted, it's something to watch. Uh, we've done a lot of research on it, though, and I think it's a little bit um, uh, too easy of a conclusion to say that an inv- inverted yield curve immediately drives a risk. Session. Uh, if we look historically, it's been from six months to two years for that really to manifest. But I think that the market is aware of what the end state of that looks like um, and is definitely uh, watching for that. So it is something that we think could potentially change the trajectory of monetary policy normalization. So, Janelle, you're down there in Washington. Obviously, a lot of talk about the midterms coming up next week. But also, we can't get too far away from the Fed and what they may do in December. So much talk about influence or lack of influence by the president and the political scene on what the Jay Powell Fed is going to do. All noise from your uh, perspective. And given that, what do you think the Fed's going to do? We think that the independence of the Fed continues to be critical to the system. We think the Fed's been very transparent. This is one of the longest tightening cycles, the normalization cycles on history. And when we think about, again, going back to the underlying economic data, GDP growth that we saw last week, where wages are at, um, we do expect that they will continue forward with a normalization process in in December. Um, right now, we're, we expect uh, probably two additional increases in 2019. Um, but we expect that they will continue to watch the data and really stay focused on that as, as, the, um, as they continue to move forward with policy. Great stuff. Janelle Woodward, President of Fixed Income and Senior Portfolio Manager at BMO Global Asset Management. You're based down in Miami, but joining us today from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much. So, yeah. And, you know, certainly the fixed income market will be keeping a close watch, uh, as we know, on that jobs report that we get come Friday. We've got some tech earnings to get through Facebook and then, of course, Apple later in the week. Uh, And we'll see if we get uh, any changes in terms of uh, expectations for the Fed or or rates. And it is a it's a tricky market to to watch right now. I mean, Mm. we've been uh, watching it closely, trying to figure it out, you know pinging Dave Wilson and everybody else to make sense of it. I'm looking at the most red. We've got GE sinking to a low. We've got a story that really sums up the overall market environment. And then you've got a story on President Trump saying he's going to end birthright citizenship. And you've got a stock about a story about Robert Mueller uh, and a probe. Like, it's just all over the place. It's all over the place. And I think that's only going to accelerate as we get closer yes. and closer to a week from today when, you know, the midterms, biggest biggest election, uh, midterm election, certainly, that we've seen in a long time. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.